1: Hi, this is Sandy. Sometimes investing isn't about the portfolio; it's about relationships. Today we speak with Michael Silverman, who shares some very powerful insights learned through a painful, pivotal moment when his sister died in a car accident. This situation changed everything for Michael and caused him to reevaluate his outlook and his behaviors. As a result, Michael is now intentional about being open, honest, vulnerable, and candid about everything, including relationships and money.
2: Cami here. Michael is a lifelong investor and entrepreneur. He's currently managing director and founder of Samantha Brands Group, which he named after his sister. The business invests in brand building by harnessing the relationships with consumers. They believe that without people, there are no new opportunities or great results. Michael's introspection and experiences have allowed him to see the value of focusing beyond just the numbers. Michael is also a fellow podcaster. Be sure to check out his What Didn't Kill You podcast to hear Michael expand on some of the themes he talks about with us.
1: Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations.
2: Now, on to our interview with Michael Silverman.
1: Michael Silverman, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us today.
3: Thank you for having me, Sandy and Cammy.
1: This is going to be a lot of fun. Michael, to get the conversation started, will you please tell us the journey of your life focusing on two to three pivotal moments who really make you the person that you are today?
3: The first would be not necessarily a moment, but a circumstance is just the family I grew up in. So you know, I was fortunate to grow up in a situation where I was always surrounded by entrepreneurs and kind of grew up in a way where imagining that building businesses was just about the most romantic notion I could think of and was fortunate enough to have a father who was and remains a close mentor of mine and a number of other folks in that network who continue to be important people in my life and great mentors to me. So grateful to have been born into that situation. So that's not a moment, but that's a pivotal circumstance, certainly. Another one would be, I lost my little sister, Samantha, when I was 27 years old and she was 24 years old, suddenly to a car accident. She was the passenger in. That set me on quite a course of soul searching and growth and development and navigating grief and pain and just was a fairly pivotal moment in my exploration of life. And then I guess the third one would probably be meeting my spouse, Kate. So I guess that's probably the three moments or circumstances that have been most impactful in my life, I suppose.
2: Michael, those are some Intense circumstances. So thanks for sharing that with us. Let's go back to though your youth. Can we start there, go a little bit deeper into growing up with your family, with the entrepreneurs? I don't even know, do entrepreneurs talk about money or are they just talking about businesses?
3: <laughs> I think to some extent the two are intertwined, but I think that for me growing up, it was always something that my father, in part of the fact that he would speak openly about things that were going on at the dinner table, but we as the kids were expected to keep his confidence, so to speak. So it was very much growing up this notion of I'm sharing a lot with you guys and you're not expected to share it outside of this house. And so there was always a feeling of, uh, I think, for both my sister and I, that we were privy to information that potentially. Our peers were not, although we never we never compared notes enough to know if that was true or not. I think it probably was true.
1: Michael, I just want to jump in and how did that feel like when your parents are saying we have private information we're discussing with you?
3: Yeah, you know it's funny, like at the time, understood that this was an important thing to maintain confidence about. I think it was something that certainly bonded my sister and I together. And it wasn't necessarily something that like, I spent a ton of time thinking consciously about until I became a young adult in my early 20s. And I realized that I had a very difficult time sharing my aspirations and things about my family and a variety of different things there. And even in sort of the late teenage years, I found that my aspirations or my expectations of myself or the things that I want to go do were based in this world that I was exposed to, but I wasn't really allowed to talk about with my peer group. And so as a result, I think that sometimes I either wouldn't share those things or wouldn't share a part of myself with people or was just highly reserved on the subject. In part because of this thought around keeping these confidences, but also that I was self-conscious that my My aspirations sounded too different from what my peer group thought about, or or I was able to articulate them in a way that maybe was a little bit different. So as a result, I got really good at speaking to adults and older, accomplished people about those sorts of things. But there was quite a period of time where I had a very hard time discussing that sort of thing with my peer group. It was a very long time when I had a hard time sort of sharing that part of myself with women I dated.
1: So you took it to heart.
3: Yeah, I think you know, reflecting backwards, those are things that certainly affected my outlook and maybe one of those unintended consequences of an otherwise seemingly pretty good policy with your kids.
1: Yeah, so thank you for that. I, I didn't mean to take you off track from what you were also sharing about growing up and how money was handled in your home and, and talked about. Was it always talked about in the context of your parents' entrepreneurial opportunities and efforts, or were there conversations around Family money matters specifically to the family.
3: Definitely both. So, my father's father was was also a successful entrepreneur in the entertainment industry around the turn of the last century. Hollywood is kind of built by a bunch of young Jewish guys, among other people. But my grandfather was one of them, and my dad grew up in that environment. And so, there was a sense of familial and, and generational caretaking that was imparted to me. And when I was thirteen years old, started. Getting much more involved in those sorts of things in the way of talking to bankers and meeting lawyers, and understanding those sorts of things from a pretty young age. We talked about this is what happens if my parents die, this is how the state matters will be handled, and how to think about capital as a tool. Those were all things that were discussed pretty early on.
2: You were taken in with the lawyers and the bankers like a teenager?
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: That must have been amazing. What a great exposure for you and presumably your sister. How did that feel at that time of life?
3: It felt pretty interesting. It was always an area that I took to, and I think from a young age, wanted to be just like my father. So the opportunity to kind of go meet these people that at the time, looking back, I I didn't really have a good understanding of what function they served, other than these were people that were part of that like quote-unquote business world beyond the friends and family that I came into contact with that I knew were were business people. So that aspect of it was kind of cool. And when we did it, we went to Northern Trust's Chicago headquarters and went to their, they have like a private dining room. So we did that whole thing. And it was certainly a, an experience that'll stick with me.
1: And Michael, learning all of this about your family, the wealth, the arrangements that were set up, how did that make you feel about your own progression into adulthood and in framing of how you would orient yourself to money on your own or or as an, a rising adult
3: it's certainly a double edged sword i would say i think that on one hand i'm extremely grateful that i grew up being exposed to the possible i kind of call it like uh, and i've had this conversation with other folks whose parents or families were good at a particular trade or were either entrepreneurs or diplomats or pilots in the military or whatever, and they were exposed to this sort of thing. And it's, it's this notion of seeing what's possible. And on one hand, it's very cool because you meet these people who have accomplished these things and you might lionize them, but they're also, you meet them and they're people that you know. The flip side of that is, I think, as you start to become a young adult, it that sort of at least for me, and I would imagine I'm not alone in this, that's sort of what your expectations for yourself are based on. And so I think it creates this, this bar that you set for yourself. And particularly, I think these days, I'm 33 years old, so I grew up with all these fabulous tech stories, whereas I think the previous generations building businesses was a, potentially decades long or lifelong thing. I know this is something that I, I talk a lot about with older executives and entrepreneurs around my parents age, what have you. And, and I think as the early 2000s and the 2010s came about this notion of, oh, you can build fabulous generational wealth in like this three to five year time frame and then just go off and do something else, I think that probably to a certain extent kind of infected like a whole generation of aspiring young entrepreneurs. And so that mixed with being able to expose these things, I think, created this expectation in my mind of, well, I'm just going to go out and actually be successful because I think I'm right and I think I know a little bit. And so, yeah, it cuts both ways. And I think it took me going out in the world and getting knocked around a bit and getting some humility and some experience to appreciate that journey. And also appreciate that these people, my father included, that I grew up really aspiring to be like and setting my expectations off of, they all overcame very, very serious challenges, adversity, and difficulties to attain what they attained. But more than that, they all, I think, had an appreciation for the journey as opposed to attaining any one thing. And it certainly took me some time to get there. So I spent a fair amount of time in my 20s, just fairly dissatisfied with myself and my progress and what I'd accomplished. Because instead of focusing on the important things like, are you learning and are you growing and are you doing things that you're really passionate about? I was hung up on this notion of I haven't accomplished enough. I haven't made enough of a name for myself versus family. I haven't built enough, all these sorts of things that to some extent, there's still those little voices that talk to me, but it's a much, much, much different vibe now. And there's a much deeper appreciation for all these things that I'm talking about.
2: Michael, would you share with us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and what is driving you? So you talked about, accomplishing something, what are you trying to accomplish? And how do you know if you've gotten there?
3: To answer your last question first, I don't think there is any getting there any longer. It's a continuum of trying to squeeze as much out of life as you can and try to learn as much and grow as much and make as big of an impact as you can while you're here, whatever limited time you've got. And hopefully you spend your time doing things that give you energy as opposed to the opposite. And building meaningful relationships and having cool experiences. So I don't think there's any end in that. And I don't really think that there's any number or particular goal other than growth for me. And you know, I've also come to appreciate that growth really is brought around by trying to do hard things and learning from them. And in my life, growth is typically the amount of growth I'm experiencing is typically correlated with the amount of pain that I have experienced or am experiencing. And that took some time for me to appreciate. That's one of the reasons why I mentioned losing my sister as a pivotal moment, besides being the most traumatic thing that's ever happened in my life. There was this appreciation for, I didn't really know that pain like this existed. You know, I knew horrible things happen all the time in life and on the planet. And you know those things intellectually, but I didn't really appreciate what pain was until then. And the degree to which that was a catalyst for my deepening appreciation for life and my journey and how much I've learned and how much I've grown and and the relationships that I'm able to build was fairly remarkable. And I'd say the same thing in my entrepreneurial journey. And that is I've set out to do certain things in the past. And it's the times when I screwed up the most have been the biggest learnings for me. In the times that I've been humbled the most have, to this point in my life, sort of been the pivotal framework for areas that I'm able to go find success in. So at a high level, that's a roundabout way of answering your question.
1: Michael, you're so wise. All of these experiences, right? Pain, growth, stumbles, pivoting and moving towards success. I'm curious, in these powerful moments, and and I think they're not moments, I think there's probably years and maybe a lifetime of pain that has resulted from your sister's death in particular. Is there anything about that that you learned about money or your relationship with money or your perspective about money that you'd like to share?
3: Yeah, a couple of things. My sister and I were a bit different in the way that we did things. I was probably more conservative than she was, but we were investing in deals together when she was alive and we were very much business partners and there was a sense of me being the older brother not just having that familial commitment but also like a commitment to teach and help understand things and work with so money was certainly at the center of some of those things and a lot of those things and there were a lot of plans for the future around you know what we're going to do with certain things how we're going to run uh, family businesses and that sort of approach. And so I think losing her, it made me realize how meaningless a lot of that stuff is without the person that you're kind of, once you lose context, it's the tools that you're using to go create something, lose meaning. So I think that a, it made me appreciate that basing your life plans. And this is a lesson that I've probably had to learn a few times. I'm sure i will have to learn a few times more, but like basing really important life plans on, Expectation of continuity is can be you know result in, in fairly painful ends. So I think that is money related and also just life related. And also there was, I think, an appreciation for not really having there was nothing there that could help me in that journey. Whether we had a lot more money or whether we had a lot less money, it was still gonna be painful. I think potentially not being in a situation where you're like, if we were impoverished, that would probably have been that much more difficult. But, but at the same time, it just made me realize that it's not all that important and would give it all up for things to be different. So I think that's certainly a big appreciation factor for the money side of things. And it goes to these things that I was told over time, or, you know, we have these cliches, and you know, always wind up running into these life events and you're like, Oh, well, it's a cliche for a reason. But like money doesn't buy you happiness kind of thing. And I think it's very true.
1: What does money do for you today?
3: I think that money doesn't buy you happiness, but it buys you time. And it buys to the extent you use that time wisely. It it can buy you freedom. It can buy you experiences. And it can be a tool for building things. So my father told me when I was very young, something that a mentor of his once told him, which is money's kind of like manure. If you put it in a pile, it stinks. And if you spread it around a field, you can grow crops with it. So I think that that's what I see it as now is just really, it's a tool to help try and build things. And that's ultimately what gets me excited. And I think that dichotomy is something too. I like following this tech investor, Naval Ravikant. And he talks about it in the context of playing wealth games versus playing status games. So I think that if you grow up around money and you don't have an appreciation necessarily for the generation of it, it's easy to conflate the two. So I think that it's a whole lot more exciting to play wealth games than to play status games. I've also
2: heard that I like this and you said money doesn't buy happiness, but it buys you time. I've also said it gives you control. And so in this case, control.
3: To the extent that life allows.
2: Yes. Right. 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 Control.
3: I think control is an illusion.
2: <laughs> maybe, maybe. Control your time. Maybe going back to where you spent your time. sounds like you like spending your time in building things. Why is that satisfaction? What is in it for you? What are you trying to build?
3: When I started investing in things, or I started my firm, Samantha Brands Group, five, six years ago, I was very hung up on this notion of control, just to touch on, on that thing that you mentioned like control deals, right? You need 51% or you need a controlling share class of this deal. And I know plenty of people have that investment mandate and, you know, generally for good reason. But I think that if you can't figure out how to manage your partners and empower the people that are working for you or helping you build whatever it is you're going to go build, it doesn't really matter how much the company that you own. It doesn't really matter what special share classes you own you can't do those things, then you have no control anyway. The control is just a piece of paper saying that you have control. And so what I've come to appreciate is that it comes down to people. And people you can't really control. There's just a lot of variables. So you can can respond and you can coach and you can navigate and help guide and you can try and inspire and encourage to head in the same direction around something. You can share a strategy and a vision. And you can choose who you work with and who you don't work with. But these are all choices you can make in response to the hand that life is dealing you at any one time. And there, you have to appreciate that you exist in a dynamic system of which you are both a cog and also trying to be an engineer of. And so I think that's what turns me on the most is this idea of like, well, can we keep showing up every day and improving this dynamic system? kind of like building a plane while it's in the air and thinking about it as I'm both a cog and also trying to be a manager of the system. And so as a result, I need to sometimes subvert my personal impulses or my desire to be reactionary in a particular scenario to what sort of reaction is going to improve the system versus satiate whatever emotion I'm feeling in that time. So I, I really like that aspect of it. Because I'm both building things, but it's also a constant test in personal growth and development. It's just growth, uh, like all the time, either personally or professionally, but it just keeps waking up. I wake up every day and keep being challenged in interesting ways. And it allows me to learn about a lot of different subjects and it lets me meet a lot of different people and it lets me have a lot of different interesting conversations. And I think... Ultimately, that those are the things that really give me energy in life and excite me. And my hope is that they're remunerative in the long term, but but certainly in the short term, it scratches my existential itch.
2: Michael, you talked with us about when you were younger, you were sort of taught to hold back, you know, not talk about money, not talk about your aspirations. Have you evolved? Have you gotten to a point where you're more open? And if you have, How's that worked for you? If you feel that there's, you know, is there part of that conversation that you don't feel you should be having externally, overtly?
3: So again, I started changing these things probably around after my sister died because I found that I was very reserved in how I interacted with other people. I equated often equated emotion with weakness or displays of emotion with weakness. And I was just kind of closing myself off to a whole spectrum of life that I think makes life more rich and worth living. And as a result was, with the exception of a a circle of close friends, made it more difficult to build meaningful relationships beyond intellectual relationships, because I've always always been oriented towards connecting with people intellectually. It's been much more difficult to historically connect with people in other ways, and that goes for sharing parts of my life, for talking about money or aspirations or any of those things. So that has changed dramatically. For instance, having this open and honest dialogue with you guys would be a fair demonstration of that. To the extent that I still struggle with it, I mean, sometimes there's certainly a little bit of that, but it's also something that I practice on a regular basis and I come back to it and I'm pretty intentional about. So, yeah, I mean, even having this conversation with you guys, there's a little bit of like, well, you know, sharing some fairly personal stuff. And that's occurred to me a few times. And there's a little voice in my head that says, do you actually feel like you need to share that with Sandy and Cami?" But uh, again, it's just this practice that I've tried to develop of continuing to be open and candid and honest and vulnerable whenever I can be. And for the most part, that's been continuing to return to that choice has been a fairly rewarding thing. It's been something that i I explore in my own podcast, What Didn't Kill you, which you know the idea is exploring sort of this connection between pain and growth and organizationally personally in businesses and in people's personal lives and charitable organizations but yeah, I found that breaking out of that mold has been a very rewarding but difficult practice for me
1: Michael, I'm so glad you brought up your own internal voice around this conversation, especially, and this is a good time to thank you again for having this open and honest conversation with us. I think, in in my experience, a lot of people struggle with having money conversations, and I'm wondering what advice you have for folks out there who might be having their own strong inner voices telling them not to have these types of conversations. What's your advice for helping them unlock their tongues and start the conversations and get over that hump of discomfort?
3: I think a lot of it depends on who you are and who you're talking to, you know, because like, there's certainly a way to talk about these things. There's a way to talk about principles without saying, oh, well, I have X amount in a bank account. Once you get to that level, it's either vulgar or it's something that like people just don't really need to know. And it's probably not in your best interest to share with people what those hard numbers are. If you're talking to somebody else and saying, Hey, what you know, would you invest in that deal and you feel like you have a good enough relationship with that person or you know you're sharing investment opportunities back and forth, then you know you talk about that sort of thing, or you talk about the return profile and something that you did with somebody else, or your investment track record, or or anything else like that, I think again, it just depends on the audience. So if it's coming from a place of wanting to learn more. I think that there are things where you should think about talking about it from the standpoint of principles. You're talking about it from the standpoint of philosophies. If it's talking about it within a family framework, then potentially it's something where you need to be a little bit more granular and a little bit more exact around exactly what assets are where and what sort of waterfalls there may be or or what sort of things are going to happen in the event of estate planning context or anything else. So I think it's highly, highly dependent on the person, on the context. And I think it's ultimately like you should be driven from a standpoint of wanting to learn more and just not worry about looking stupid. So the more that you just prioritize learning above all else, I think you're probably going to be guided in a pretty good direction.
1: I love that. At least be a seeker.
2: Michael, you mentioned one of your pivotal moments was meeting your now spouse. Do you talk now about your overall values and does money play into any of those conversations?
3: Yeah, so that was a huge, huge thing for Kate and I as soon as we started dating was really sharing those sorts of existential and personal values and what we wanted out of life and out of a family and, and out of a partner. Growing up, my parents always told me that one of the reasons their relationship succeeded is that they made their deal. And they looked at a lot of other marriages around them that maybe didn't work out. And they were oftentimes taken up with passion and with love and with all those important things. But they never sat down and said, this is what I want out of life. and This is what I want out of a partner. And I want to hear the same out of you. And I think that that instilled in me uh, from a young age that marriage is a romantic thing, but it's also a contractual arrangement. Two people can love each other and not get married. Two people can have kids together and not get married. Two people can spend the rest of their lives together and still not get married other than potentially being common law married. So it's an arrangement that you enter into. And I think that I grew up with this notion of it's something that you should be very intentional about and something that you should sit down and very clearly sketch out your expectations, her expectations, and also how you want to go live your lives together and the kind of families that you want to raise and the kind of values that you share. So that was something that was really important to us. And we did kind of a retreat around that for a weekend and just mapped a lot of those things out and and wrote a lot of it down.
1: Just the two of you or was someone else helping you out or other people?
3: Just the two of us. And it's something that we come back to and we talk a lot about And fortunately, we have a relationship that's pretty steeped in candid communication with each other. And I think that's, frankly, the only way that it works. I don't profess to be an expert. I haven't been doing this very long, but compared to other people, but that's absolutely the way we approached it.
1: And I'm curious, Michael, in the conversations you and Kate were having, did you talk about money responsibilities and who'd be doing things such as paying the bills or keeping track of assets? Did you get that granular?
3: To some extent, yeah. So I would say that that's an evolving thing and probably will be an evolving thing for much of our lives. But we did talk about how we intend to sort of manage our our marital property and how we do that moving forward. And those are absolutely things we talked about.
1: In those conversations, did you find any topics, any money topics that were uncomfortable to broach with each other or was it relatively smooth and easy?
3: I think that to the extent I've never had that transparent of a conversation about these things with anyone outside of my family before there was, there was certainly a little bit of that. Like that was, that was just new to me. But also I think for me, that was a representation of how committed I was to the situation because there are plenty of other situations where that wasn't even like remotely something that would even occur to me to do. So yeah, I think that took some doing, I suppose. And I think that, Coming to the subject from different backgrounds and different experiences, I think you learn that things that you took for granted or things that you assume that were standard, you come to appreciate that they're not. And you got to talk through those things and learn about each other's experiences and learn about each other's perspectives to appreciate how you're going to move forward together.
2: I like that. You already said it'll evolve. And then you talked about that you practice and you're intentional about these conversations whatever they are. And I think that's part of this whole exercise. You got to keep practicing. And you got to be intentional.
3: Yeah, you're never done.
2: Michael, what do you most want to do that you haven't yet done?
3: I'm excited right now about the journey of growth and learning that I'm on. And I'm looking forward to you know, seeing where it takes me tomorrow. I want to keep doing things on larger levels or as my father says, just keep moving the decimal point over. I aspire to that in terms of the size of deals that I can potentially do or the size of businesses just because I think that there there are certain challenges that smaller businesses create and certain challenges that larger businesses create and so I, the more verticals and the more types of challenges I'm exposed to and able to learn about that ultimately will keep me satisfied I think that the idea of accessing different capital markets is exciting so from that perspective taking Taking a company public someday would be a very cool thing, or being part of that journey.
1: Michael, I'm curious, how do you define success today based on where you're at in your life?
3: I think that it's changed a lot for me over the years, but now it's really about am I growing, am I learning, and am I monetizing both figuratively and literally my previous mistakes? And so I recently read the book Range by David Epstein and he talks about wicked learning environments versus kind learning environments. And So the more that I'm able to navigate wicked learning environments and have sort of these analogous experiences that I can bring to the next experience, I think that feels exciting to me and that's ultimately what success looks like, that and building meaningful relationships with people and being able to connect intellectually with people whose minds I admire.
1: Michael, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in the conversation?
3: I think that appreciating compounding interest, and not just from a literal sense but from a figurative sense too, that's another one where you grow up in a certain environment, and you just like you want stuff, you want stuff fast, you want things to grow quickly. And as I look at some of my investments over the years, some of my biggest successes have just been passive ones that I chose the right thing and things just compounded over time. Where my thesis wound up being correct. I didn't have to do a lot. And I look back now and I say, those are some of the best choices I've made are the ones that I didn't have to necessarily kill myself over. And I just practiced good judgment. And the same thing with with habits in my life, the same thing with any number of other things is just if you just keep Trying to move the ball forward a little bit every day, that compounds over time. If you save a little bit every day, that compounds enormously over time. But I think for a young person, it's hard. You can know that intellectually and someone can tell you that and you can learn it in an economics textbook. But until you actually see it unfold in a bank account or on a PL over time, it's hard to like really at least for me, it's hard to really gain an appreciation for it.
2: It's one of those things that takes time and We like instant gratification more and
3: more these days. But the more that you can defer gratification, to some extent, with money, that's the name of the game. That's right.
2: Well said. So, Michael, we like to always ask our guests, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with?
3: Probably with my father, as soon as I get off this call about whether or not we're going to invest in uh, in a company we're looking at.
1: Michael, what a great conversation. Thank you so much again for opening up with Cami and me. I love everything you had to say about learning and developing and growing. And to me, that's just another form of compound investing, right? Investing in those relationships. I wish you a lot of success with that as you move forward in your life.
3: Thank you, Sandy. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Cami. Appreciate it, guys. Sandy, that was a really
2: special conversation we just had with Michael Silverman, who you could tell has worked really hard on being open and making himself vulnerable to have a conversation like we just had, ranging from his highest highs of meeting his now wife to his lowest lows of losing his sister.
1: I agree, Cammie. I think I was really inspired by Michael's conversation with us. I think it's so cool that he acknowledged how much pain he has had in his life and how he has grown and learned from that pain. That was a constant theme throughout his remarks. And it was just so inspiring, right? I mean, it just kind of helps make all of us realize that life is hard. It's really hard, but out of that difficulty and pain. We can grow and improve and be better people if we allow ourselves to do that. And I think that people's awareness and interactions and relationships with money definitely fit in that bucket.
2: And his investment in, and his constant theme of growth and learning and how that plays so nicely with what we're doing every week with Money Tales. And and we've had other guests talk about some of the best learning has been from the hardest challenges in their life. It doesn't have to necessarily be death, but it could be other challenges that they learn the most from and that really opened them up. And that I found really, I loved your word, inspiring, powerful, and motivated me in many ways.
1: I like Just a good reminder of how important having a growth mindset is. And again, just to bring it back to money, having a growth mindset around money is really important. If you're open to acknowledging your experiences when things don't work out the way that you want them to, that's okay. You're learning. And I really like what Michael said at the end about monetizing on his mistakes.
2: That I really appreciate it. And taking the time to think about what is the growth? What are you learning from these experiences? So, that you do learn and you pass on your learning through your money conversations, through your other conversations.
1: Absolutely. And I also really appreciated his sharing with us his experience as a young person, right? When he was 13, he said his parents started talking with him and his sister about their financial affairs and their estate planning. And I loved that Michael shared how. He and his sister were brought into the fold of the family's confidence, and this brings up a really important theme that we talk about with clients all the time, which is privacy versus secrecy. Right? If you can feel comfortable sharing private information with your family members, that helps, and especially kids. That helps build them up. It builds up their confidence. It, they feel like they're part of something, and they can understand the sensitivities of that privacy. Whereas if some people approach it differently and talk about sharing a secret, that implies oftentimes judgment. And it can imply that that there is something to be ashamed of, it sets them apart from other families, whether that's good or bad.
2: Sandy, 13 though, is that early? Like, what do you think when you're talking with clients?
1: You know, I think, Kami, it really just depends on the family and the family dynamics. You know, certainly... Some parents are very comfortable opening the kimono and sharing what's involved with their kids at a very early age, and others prefer to wait until the kids are in their 50s or 60s. And so I think there's no one right answer. But I do think that there is benefit in families being very intentional about how the relationships within their family are working, what the dynamics are, what the family system is, and revealing information that feels comfortable to them within the context of those relationships and taking into consideration the capacity to absorb the information of the person that they're sharing the information with, whether it's a child, a grandchild, a sibling, or a parent. I think that's really important. What I
2: really appreciated in this conversation is that Having those early conversations, Michael expressed that it gave him confidence. What a gift he was given.
1: What I found working with families for the last 20 years, Cami, is sometimes when there's not conversation, family members will make assumptions, uh, especially kids. They'll assume things are a certain way, and oftentimes those assumptions are incorrect. So being able to have that confidence and to have open conversations and allow for questions can really make a big positive difference in my experience.
2: Great point, Sandy.
1: Well, thanks again
2: for another amazing conversation. I'm so glad we got to know Michael Silverman. What a gift.
1: Right? Honestly, for such a young man, he has so much wisdom and so much to share. And I feel very lucky that he shared that with us.
2: Me too. I hope listeners, please feel free to reach out to us and let us know what you think or if you have any additional comments. You can reach us at podcasts at Asperient.com.
1: We love hearing from you and please feel free to rate the show and yes, give us your feedback.
0: Give us your feedback. Thanks, Sandy. Thank you, Cammie. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.